Well, good morning. I know some of you wanted to start off with a Christmas song. That's not happening. Okay? So I'll do it this way. We're going to remind you which holiday is actually coming. Okay? If you looked out this morning, you might have been a little confused. And some of us are often confused at this time of the year because Easter just sort of floats around. It is in three weeks. Three weeks from today, we are celebrating Resurrection Sunday, Easter. And uh, if I were to ask you, do you know when Easter falls next year? In uh, 2020 or 2021 or 2022 or 2023? I bet there's nobody in here that can answer that question right now. When is Christmas? December what? 25th. That's a really easy one, okay? Let me help you out here. Here's when Easter is going to fall in 2020. It's going to be April 12th, but then the following year it's April 4th, and then the following year it is April 17th, and then the following year it is April 9th. You see how this can be very confusing and how Easter just sneaks up on us? It's just somewhere between March and April. Uh, we're going to celebrate Easter is the way it rolls. And uh, with Christmas, that doesn't happen. Because if we forget, well, first of all, it's one day, December 25th. But if we forget, the stores will remind you at least six, seven weeks, maybe eight weeks in advance with music and decorations. That doesn't happen with Easter. And so it just sort of sneaks up on us, which is maybe you've heard of Lent before, and that's why people do that. Um, well, let's start preparing our hearts for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday. Three weeks away. I just want to start bringing that up now, bring it to our attention. Let's start to prepare. It is an incredible time to celebrate God's love for us. We know that at Christmas, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior, to be our Messiah. We know that a Messiah was born, that hope and peace came, right? Um, but without Easter, that, that doesn't matter so much. And what I mean by that is this. Christ could have been born, but if he had not died and risen from the dead, he would have just been a legacy. But because he rose from the dead, he is now our Savior. Truly the Son of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ solidifies every truth proclaimed. And it validates every promise made. We have eternal life because he lives. We have hope because he lives. We have peace because he lives. We have forgiveness and eternal life and transformation taking place in our life because he lives. And I do not want us to ever forget that. He is a God who is alive. He is a God who sets human part, human life apart from every other thing. And that's why we celebrate that. But we also celebrate the truth that God created life and did in a very precious way. Last week we talked about the subject of abortion and how life matters and how life matters to God. And if it matters to God, it should matter to us. And uh, I want to sort of continue with that thought, but in a somewhat of a different direction. I want you to know how much life matters, God. And if you've made a bad choice, and if you've struggled with choices in your life, and you've sat there and you didn't realize what we talked about last week until you, it was presenting, like, wow. And I told you before, I said, We're all, we've all sinned. We've all messed up. And, and some of us, though, we feel ashamed because of choices we made. We feel guilty. And I want to share with you today God's word continued on from last week into this. Uh, so th- this is why we're in the book of John. Um, there's so much good stuff here. Um, we, we, we come back to now the book of John. And in, in this section, chapters 3 and 4 is really good. And, and I sort of joked at the first service. You guys always hear me say, oh, this is one of my favorite verses. And I say that every Sunday. So basically... This is one of my favorite verses right here in my hand, okay? And, and when it comes to my favorite part of John, well, this is 
One of my favorite parts of John, again, it's sort of all good, right? So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of, of John, and we're going to look at um, chapter 3 in, in just brief, like two seconds, and then chapter 4 is where we're at. But I want to remind you, chapter 3 is about Nicodemus, because in chapter 2, actually, Jesus said, hey, there's a Savior that is needed for all mankind, and in chapter 3, we're introduced to Nicodemus, an example of who needed, or who was a part of that mankind term that Jesus used. So we have Nicodemus, but then in chapter 4, we have another example of mankind that is in need of Jesus. In this, though, chapter 4, we see this contrast between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. So I put that up on the screen so you can see the difference. We have a Jew, we have a Samaritan. One's a Pharisee, one has no religious party. One is a politician, one has no status. One is a scholar, one is uneducated. One is highly moral, the other one, she is very immoral. We have one who's named. His name is Nicodemus. The other one is just nameless. She's the Samaritan woman, right? We have one who came at night. She came at noon. We had one who was uh, protecting his reputation. We had another. She had no reputation. No, actually did. It was bad. We had one who was seeking Jesus. We had one who was sought by Jesus. We had one that basically says, no one can rise too high. And the other one says, no one can sink too low. So we have these contrasting differences. And a lot of times when we talk about John chapter 4 and the Samaritan woman, we always talk about the differences. But I want to bring something to the light here, and and maybe you've heard this too. Let's talk about what they did have in common. This is important to know. They both had this in common. They both felt that they were okay, religiously speaking. I mean, Nicodemus had his rules. He had his laws that he followed, and he was feeling he was really good there with, with God. And the Samaritan woman, well, she had her mountain on which... Her people went and worshipped God, so she was feeling pretty good too. And they both, were, though, were unclear in what Jesus was saying. Born again? I mean, got to go back into my mom? Living water? I mean, there's a bubbling stream around here somewhere? Jesus was using spiritual terms. They were using literal terms. But they both misunderstood where Jesus was going with his conversation. Both sensed they needed something different in life. They both knew that something was missing. I'm not... I could put my finger on it, but I know something is messing. Well, here's the thing. They were both lost. I don't know about anybody in here ever been lost before. You know, a, lot of, a lot of men won't raise their hands, right? We've, we've never been lost because wherever we end up, that's where we intended to be for the moment, right? But thanks to maps, thanks to Siri, getting lost doesn't happen as often as it used to be, but... When we did get lost, if we did get lost, it was why? Oh, I made a wrong turn. Sometimes we just made a, a, a bad choice in direction or something, or maybe we were purposely led astray. Regardless, we've all been in that moment in our life where we were not where we were supposed to be, and it didn't feel right. We were lost. God says, yes. You're lost, and there's another time you're lost too. Matter of fact, the book of Isaiah says it like this. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've, we've wandered off. We're lost. Paul says in Romans 23, 23, says, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all missed the mark. We're, we're spiritually lost. But like this sheep that is talked about in Isaiah 53, 6, that wasn't just a wandering off. That was a rebellious choice. That sheep purposely wandered off. And a lot of us do that. We're like, I'm going to make my own choice, and I'm just going to go this direction. And what we find, though, is that when we go our own direction, we're going usually in the opposite direction of Jesus. And we become lost. So both Nicodemus and this woman are 
lost. So Jesus came to show Nicodemus. He came to show the Samaritan woman. He came to show you and I how to be found. The good news is salvation is for people like Nicodemus, for people like the Samaritan woman, for people like you and I. Salvation is for all. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. Don't you think they should bring one to you? The hand shot up. Oh, cousin's got you. Nice. John chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read there. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptized and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now here's the thing. The popularity of Jesus is growing. His fame is growing. And he knows it's not time to really reveal himself yet. And so he doesn't want to have this, this confrontation with the religious leaders. So he said, you know what? We're just going to, we're just going to head out of here. And um, we're going to return to Galilee. And then there's two routes to go from Jerusalem to Galilee. One is through Samaria and one is to the east of Samaria. Now as a Jew, you do not go through Samaria. Okay? That's like, as a Buckeye, you don't go through that state above you. Okay? You know what I'm saying? I didn't use this illustration earlier, but I thought about maybe that will help some of you understand. Okay? I'm from Indiana, so I just sort of sit back and say, I don't get you all. But anyway, it's sort of fun watching. Okay? But as a Jew, you don't go through Samaria. You're going to go around it. It's going to take a little more time. But I will not go through that area. To understand why that took place, we have to rewind in history back to the Babylonian captivity. Think back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think back to Daniel. When the Babylon, uh, when they sent their army in, in the Babylonian captivity, they came in and they grabbed all these people out of Judah and they took them off and made them become slaves. Well, who did they leave behind? They left the weak. They left those of no status. They left those that really couldn't fend for themselves. Those people were still left there. Those people intermarried with other people that were not Jews. Then their faith did the same thing. They sort of mingled their faith with other faiths. They developed a new culture. They were called Samaritans. So that's why these Jewish people look back at them like, you are not true Jews. And so there was this, this hatred that, that grew between them. Matter of fact, um, the Samaritans, they built a temple up on Mount Gerizim, which we'll read later in John 4. And the Jews actually burned it down in like 128 B.C. Not a good thing, right? Well, the scripture says that Jesus had to or he needed to go through Samaria. Why did he have to do that? Do you ever think about that? You just sort of read through it, right? It's like, and he needed to go through Samaria. Why? Because the road was closed outside? No. Because what is the mission of Jesus? To seek and save those who are lost. So he has to go through Samaria. Because he knows that's where God's going to take him. Look at verse 5. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar. Near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired of the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Now, why does this well matter? Again, it's one of those things where we have to understand when you're reading Scripture, if you find a location, a name, a date, those are indicators that help us trace back in history. Because a lot of people don't believe the Bible is true. But because we have location and name and place, we can go back and say, no, that was an actual place. Matter of fact, it was a famous place. It was a place in which it had a lot of significance. 
You probably won't be able to read all these things, but here's some things that took place at the well. Abram first came when he arrived from Canaan, from Babylonia. It's where God appeared to Abram in Canaan and renewed his promise of giving him the land and his descendants. Jacob was there, built an altar to the Lord. This is a, a plot that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Joseph uh, was eventually buried there. And then uh, Joshua, you, some of you probably have these placards in your home. <clears throat> it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You, know, you remember that phrase? This is where um, Joshua made that covenant at this well. So it's a place of significance. And we have Jesus who comes strolling up with his disciples. And he's like, I'm tired. I'm thirsty. I'm just going to sit down here by the well. His disciples are like, well, we'll just head on into town and get all the provisions we need. He's like, you guys, you guys go for it. Now what I love about this picture is the fact that God left his throne room and became human. He set aside his limitations and took on the limitations. I'm sorry, he set aside what he had and put on the limitations of mankind. He is now thirsty and tired. That would have never happened in heaven. But now he is. You know why? Just look around at the people next to you. That's why. Because of you and me. He became man for you and me so that he could eventually die for us. But now he's tired. He should be. It's the middle. He had a long walk. It's the middle of the day. It's noon, so he's thirsty. And he sits down here to rest. An incredible picture of God's love for us in that picture alone. You may not think that's a picture of God's love. It is. Because he set aside heaven to do this for us. That's love. That's love. Look at verse 7. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and he said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because the disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, this woman came at a very unusual time of the day, and everybody knows why, right? Maybe you don't. Well, see, here's what happens. Typically, the ladies came earlier in the day, and they came together as a group. Not just for socially, but it was, that's what they did. She's coming at noon, the wrong time of the day, and by herself. Why is that? Well, because she's got a reputation. Oh, you know what kind of girl she is. She's had a lot of men in her life. So, avoid all the talk amongst all the other girls. She's been shunned. Everybody knows who she is. Her reputation is bad. Her morals are out there, right? Disciples, think about this. As she's walking towards that well on that road, there's only one road between that well and the village. She's walking that road. They're walking that road. You think they passed her? They had to. They had to. What do you think happened? Again, a woman of loose morals. Disciples of Jesus, they're new in their faith. They haven't gotten it all together yet, okay? But they're these Jewish men, okay? What do you think happens? Uh, a gentleman by the name of Boyce said this. We can be certain at this stage of their lives, Peter and the others probably would have never moved off the path for any woman, much less a Samaritan, and perhaps one with loose morals at that. Perhaps she had been pushed aside or made to wait while the Galileans marched by. Could you imagine that? Here comes this woman. They're like, guys, hold your ground. Samaritan woman, you know what kind of girl she is. And she would have maybe, what, pushed off the side, again, being treated like dirt. Okay? This is the woman that's going to come and sit by the well with Jesus. Just keep this in mind. What does Jesus do when she gets there? He speaks to her. 
<laughs> the disciples probably didn't say a word. Jesus speaks to her. Understand that by tradition, rabbis, which Jesus would be considered a rabbi, did not speak to women in public, even if it was their wife. There was uh, another gentleman by the name of Barclay said this. There were even Pharisees who were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they shut their eyes when they saw a woman on the street and they walked into walls and, and houses. Okay, It seems sort of humorous, but it probably happened. They were so stuck on, can't look at that woman. You know, they would turn their head, close their eyes, and they probably ran into stuff. It's like, oh, he's a bleeding Pharisee. Ooh, I like that term. Let's use that. And they probably rolled with it. It was also very unusual for a Jewish person for that time to ask a favor or to even take a drink, to offer a cup. You don't do those things. Samaritan requesting this just doesn't happen. And so Jesus, when he's, Jesus is now the one requesting it, she's shocked. She doesn't know what to think. He's the one initiating contact. He's the one initiating change. He's the one initiating that opportunity. Isn't that so like God? Because we wouldn't do that. We would not go out of our way maybe so much to go share Jesus with somebody. But you know what? God does this thing of calling uh, these miraculous moments a coincidence. When somebody just happens to show up and you're like, oh, what an opportunity to share Jesus with you. Or what an opportunity to do something nice for you. It's like, wow, it's amazing how that worked out. Divine opportunity. Just like this moment right here. Immediately, a woman's impressed by the friendliness of Jesus, right? Unusual to want for any man to talk to her, let alone this rabbi. And a Jewish one at that. So look at verse 10, what she says. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me. I'd give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and the well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? She was not getting it. You don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. I don't see any bubbling water going around here. Jesus is talking about living water, like a spring that bubbles up, not a well that holds water, not a cistern that holds water. A well with a, just keeps it all in one place. Right? A spring brings up fresh water, new water, every day. Jesus replied, verse 13, anyone who drinks this water, referring to his living water, or to the well water, said, will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink of the water I give, that's spring, right, will never thirst again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Oh, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. Jesus is using this picture of, of spiritual need, any longing that we have. We all thirst for something. We all thirst to be loved, to be accepted. We thirst for, for people to just look at me and love me for who I am. And, and, but what do we do? Because we are so thirsty, we will go do things that might be immoral or bad choices to get people to love us, to get people to accept us, to get people to look at us, to get people to like us. We are so thirsty. And Jesus says, I've got the living water that will wipe out that thirst. You just need me. 
You don't need a man. You don't need a woman. You don't need money. You, you don't need all these things. What you need is me. It's common for us to do that, isn't it? We're thirsty. We look and we long and we search for that which will make us what? Happy. I just want to be happy. And as parents, what? We want our kids to be what? Happy. How about holy? Jesus says, I want to make you holy. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11, 13, it says this. It says, as any situation... Let me get just, sorry, let me get the scripture to you. It says, and Jeremiah, we'll get there. Help me out, Dan. I have no idea where it went. There it is. Where was it? Ian, you help me out? You're the man. Thank you so much. In Jeremiah chapter 2, it says this. Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they were not gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing, and they shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have, got, have done two evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. See, Israel got in trouble with God because they did a couple things. First of all, they abandoned God. Hey, we don't need you, God. And then they dug their own, their own cisterns, their own wells, which is basically like this. We don't need you to provide for us. We're going to dig our own place and we can provide for ourselves. But what does God say? They were cracked cisterns. They were broken. They won't hold anything. If it does, it's stagnant. They said, we're going to make a trade. We don't need you, God. We've got our own cisterns. Hey, we don't need holiness. we got happiness. We don't need purity. We've got our lust. Oh, we don't need, we don't need your generosity we like our greed. It's a, that's a bad trade, by the way, if you haven't figured that one out. Instead of trusting God in what he gives, we dig our own wells and we try to make ourselves feel happy and good. You want to know why certain relationships just don't hit the spot? Because that's not the key relationship in your life. God is the key relationship in your life. And then all those other relationships are add-ons in which he will help you grow in. But when you make another person the key relationship in your life, it's going to end up being a broken cistern. Charles Spurgeon said this. What does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there's no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. To drink is to receive, to take in the refreshing draught, and that is all. A man's face may be unwashed, yet he can drink. He may be a very unworthy character, but he, yet a draught of water has removed his thirst. Drinking is such a remarkably easy thing. It's even more simple than eating. Some of you are like, Rex, your voice. You need a drink, right? And here's the water right here. All I have to do is drink of it. But out of my pride, I'm just going to keep talking. I don't need that, right? We do the same thing with God. Living water sits before us, but yet we just try to do things on our own. Don't need it. And all he does is just take a drink. Take a drink. You know, when we accept Jesus Christ into our life, we are taking that living water. And he's quenching that thirst that we have. He replaces that brokenness within us, that cracked cistern of the living spring. 
needs to be Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. I'm going to show you a video here in a second. And in this video, it's of, uh, her name is Mo Isom. I, I mentioned her before. You've seen some videos of, of her uh, in which um, maybe you've already clicked on and watched this. It's a longer video. And yes, I plan to have a long video this morning. So we're going to go a couple extra minutes, okay? But I want you to hear her whole story because here's the thing about Mo Isom. She is the woman at the well. As you listen to her story, she is the woman at the well. In her book, chapter 7, I remember reading, she goes, I'm like that woman. I was so broken. Oh, I had a reputation. I was ashamed of the choices I was making with boys. I was ashamed of the things I was doing in my life. And I just needed Jesus. In her book, as I read this, I was just amazed. And then, you know, so I, I saw this video. I was like, I'm going to show this to you because she's going to be here April 12th on a Friday night. And I'm going to invite you all back to that. But I want you to hear her testimony now because she is this woman, the one who came to Jesus and basically said, I need something else in my life, but I won't admit it until you really point out how thirsty I am. And that's what happens. So um, watch this video. The majority of my life has been an absolute battle for control with God. I was raised in a Christian household uh, with a Christian family and uh, church every Sunday with my mom and with my dad. And what that really consisted of for me was doodling on the prayer cards and trying not to fall asleep while the minister spoke. I was a Christian, right? I was in church. I went every Sunday. That's what I thought. When I entered high school was really the first time in my life that I desired control. I wanted to call the shots. I wanted to be the playmaker. I wanted to map out my future from that point on. So much of my youth was um, based around soccer, primarily. I was an athlete since I had been a child, and that was a big part of my identity at that time. There were a lot of people that um, I tried so hard to please in my social life, in soccer, with my friends, in the classroom, even with my family, in relationships, in trying to control each of those elements, elements that are so out of my own control, uh, I really lost myself. I developed an eating disorder in my freshman year of high school. What started as anorexia evolved to bulimia. There were days where I would eat an apple and throughout the course of that day make myself throw up nine to ten times a day. Uh, when my fingers wouldn't work anymore, I'd use the base of hairbrushes, toothbrushes, anything that could get those calories out of my body. So quickly I was losing energy, I was broken, I was hurting, and I turned to energy pills. I turned to anything I could put in my body that would give me some form of synthetic energy to keep going. To everybody, I was living the dream. I mean, I, I looked so good and, and um, you know, I was winning pageants and I was making the next level in the Olympic program and, and I was doing all of these things and everyone had a big old pat on the back for me and no one saw that inside I was broken, shattered. But throughout those four years where I struggled to see my own beauty, there was a knocking on my heart, just this soft knocking. Please let me back in. Just let me back in. So I finally um, came clean to my mom. I, I told her what I had been doing, how I had been uh, 
living my life and, and trying to control so much. I was scared to do that. But our parents' love for us is such a great parallel to God's love for us. Because rather than condemning me, rather than getting mad at me, my mother opened her arms to me. My father was supportive of me. They offered to get me help. And they led me back to the Lord ultimately and showed me that my love and my identity and my worth was defined in Him, not in meeting the expectations of everybody else around me. So right before I came to college, and to be totally independent, I gave God back control. I wanted Him to be the master. I gave Him the reins. I said, Lord, I, I've been trying to do it on my own, and I'm not good at it. I'm not good at it at all, and I hurt. And as I devoted more and more of myself to Him, his blessings rained down. I had, had worked very hard and the Lord had blessed me with a full scholarship to LSU to be um, starting goalkeeper for the team. And in my second game, I lined up to take a routine free kick and I ended up scoring a 90 yard goal. What? It doesn't happen. It hit ESPN, it hit SportsCenter. It was all over the place. And in that moment, the crowd erupted. The, my team came running after me. I could hear screams, I could hear cheers, but above all else, I could hear one voice. And I looked up and I locked eyes with my dad. And I kid you not, he was wearing the biggest smile I have ever seen him wear. I thought he was going to explode. He was a big man and he was screaming so loud with this scream that can't be imitated. It was one thing to have scored a crazy goal, but to have seen that utter joy flow from my father was on a total another level. At the end of that season, I was I had broken every record at LSU. I was All-American and um, freshman All-SEC. I was on top of the world, untouchable. Until I went home for Christmas break after that freshman season. And one night, my dad didn't come home. What you have to understand about my dad is he is my biggest fan. He is my hero, my confidant, my, my jury, my judge, everything. He was, he was my heart. He was my best friend. And he was a family man through and through. There's nothing he loved more than his family. To make a, a very long story short, my father had gotten tangled up in a lie, in a lie that um, he had held in for a number of years. And when that lie came to the surface, he was scared. I know my dad loved the Lord, and I know that my dad's heart was a heart filled with Jesus Christ. But I know too that my dad was hurting and prideful and weak because I imagine he tried to take control for himself a lot in his life too. And sometimes when we try so desperately to control things, we lose control so easily. January 3rd, 2009, my dad put a gun to his heart and pulled the trigger. 
he committed suicide. My father, my best friend, as quickly as he was here, he was gone. He gave up. It was January 3rd, 2009 that I ran as far from Christ as I possibly could. Is this what I get? That's not how it's supposed to work. That's not how it's supposed to look, right? I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with you, God, because you weren't there for me when, when my family needed you. I fell into depression, deep, deep depression. I started feeling feelings I'd never felt before, feelings of resentment and anger and hatred. And I wanted anything I could get my hands on to fill that void. I wanted anything I could to give some sense of pleasure so I wouldn't have to feel how bad it hurt. I filled my heart with alcohol. I filled my heart with partying. I filled my heart with boys. I filled my heart with any form of affection I could get that would numb that pain for just the slightest bit of time. It is a blessing that through all of that, the Lord alone helped me hold on to one promise that I had made to my mom. One promise that I would remain pure until I was married, that I would save myself for my husband. Everything we seek on this earth to fill any part of us is so temporary. Unless it's the love of Jesus Christ. I didn't know that at that time. I couldn't feel it. It hurt too bad to feel. And it was so difficult to learn that lesson that I had to fail time and time and time again. And through all of these failures, through all of this pain, guess who was knocking the whole time on my heart? Please let me in. Let me in. Please just let me back in. Almost one full year later, I was driving down the interstate. I had been caught up in traffic. Um, it had been an eight-hour drive. And I was ready to get home. I was tired. And I remember praying to the Lord and, and saying, you know what? I, I want to trust you, but I don't. Reveal yourself to me. If your love is so unending, if you love me like you do, why have you allowed me to hurt like this? I just don't trust you. Very shortly after saying that prayer, I lost control of my vehicle. I first swerved into the center median, then I shot across the road and hit an embankment. I flipped my car three times. I wrapped it around a tree. I stripped the front of my Jeep clean off. And I remember waking up, hanging upside down by my seatbelt, vomiting blood. It's 1.30 in the morning. There's no one else on the road. I'm completely and utterly alone and completely and utterly vulnerable. And in that moment, I've never felt more wrapped in the arms of the Holy Spirit and more comforted by our God. In that moment, I felt God and I knew him. He had interrupted my life. There was one man who had been driving down the road a ways behind me and vaguely seen some lights swerve and head off the road. And he just felt, he felt moved to pull over and to check it out. 
That man ended up being a retired paramedic and in the Navy and a believer in Jesus Christ. This man crawled down to my car and told my mom that he expected to find a dead body. And when he shined his flashlight in the vehicle, he found me laying, saying three words, God is beautiful. God is beautiful. God is beautiful. I ended up breaking every rib I had, broke my neck, uh, had damage to my face, my lungs, my liver. Um, most severely, I had uh, some damage to my brain, but the Lord healed me. And he saw me through, and he saw to it that I could continue to use the talents and the gifts he had blessed me with on the soccer field and continue to compete as an athlete. The best encouragement I received through all of that was that I was going to hit bumps in the road. I was going to face adversity. But Romans 5, 3 through 5 calls us to rejoice in our adversity because adversity produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And hope in the Holy Spirit never fails us. It never fails us. And I am a living testament to the fact that I have been at the highest of highs and I have been at the lowest of absolute lows. And through this whole journey of life that is a roller coaster, there's one constant. One. His name is Jesus Christ. And his love and his grace and his mercy never fail. I want to live radically for that man. I want to live the word 100% black and white, as pure as it comes. I want to give up whatever he calls me to give up. I want to serve however he calls me to serve. And I want to be unashamed about it. I want to tell the world about it. I want to climb to the highest mountaintop there is and sing about it. I gave my heart to the Lord that day, truly gave my heart to the Lord when I was hanging upside down, broken. And since that day, my life has never been the same. When you look at her life, she is that woman at the well, isn't she? She tried to replace that thirst in her life with other things. Now, you heard her say she grew up in the church, but she really didn't know God until she truly surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. He gives you that living water. And here's what I've, what I've learned. And if I were to buy a piece of property that has a well on it, I could take a bulldozer and clear that land and just push dirt into that well, right, and cover it up. But you know what? If that is a spring, and I come in and I bulldoze, and I come back the next morning where that spring is, guess what? It's going to be wet again because that bubbling water continues to spring up. And a lot of times in our life, we just we try to cover up what God wants to do in our life. He's, he's told us, he's called us, he says, I know you're thirsting for something, and only I can quench that thirst. Take the living water. And we're like, no, I got this. And we just bulldoze dirt right over what God wants to give us. But then it keeps bubbling up. And what happens is this. It gets muddy, doesn't it? Our lives get pretty messy. 
when we try to cover up what God's trying to do in our life. And he said, would you just let me spring up? Just take this living water. Now we're going to continue in John 4 next week with the woman at the well. We're going to talk a little bit more about this and what happens in her life and some incredible things. But I wanted you to hear the testimony of Mo today because that's a living testimony. There's probably many more living testimonies out here today that have that same kind of testimony. Maybe not as you know, big as hers, that extravagant. But a lot of us in this room, we've tried to take care of that thirst on our own. What we need is the living water, Jesus Christ. Some of us feel maybe we haven't done that yet, though. You're like that woman who's ashamed. Everybody knows my reputation. I've made some bad choices. And I'm just going to go hang out at the well when nobody else is there because I'm just going to get what I need for the day and I'll be back tomorrow and I'm just going to keep coming back and I'm going to keep making these choices because I'm ashamed of what I've done. Good news is that Jesus Christ is, hey, let me sit here with you and give you the living water. You won't need to keep coming back to what you've been coming back to because I'll be with you and I'll keep springing up within you and I'll help you. Take it. Take it, church. If you haven't, if you're in your tent, you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, let him be your living water. Let him be your living water. If you're in here and you're like, he is my living water, well, then let him bubble out of you. Let everybody around you know what you got. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. I thank you, Lord, for this day you've given us. And we can come and look into your word and we can see that we are so like Nicodemus. We are so like the woman at the well that we all are in need of you. Different backgrounds. Men, women. Different race. Different education. Different family backgrounds and choices in our lives. But we all share the similar need and that is life eternal through your son Jesus Christ living water and like this woman at the well we've tried to dig our own cisterns we've tried to do our own thing it isn't working we need your living water we need you so God we pray for those that are in here today that maybe have never surrendered today be a great day to say God I'm sorry forgive me come into my life I want this living water quench the thirst I have and for those of us in here that have made that decision, today's a great day to say, God, thank you for the living water. Yeah, it's bubbling. Keep springing up within me. Let, me. let me share this joy with others. Wherever we are, God, meet us now. Meet us now right where we are, right where we're standing. Meet us now. We love you, Lord. We sing to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.